0: the company contracted us to build this automated system that fully automated the process. And the fear was that, are the workers and operators gonna feel upset that you're displacing their work? And the feedback was they actually love it because it actually makes their job more rewarding. Like they get to, you know, here's a you know a, a middle-aged production worker that's been doing production environment for almost you know, 15, 20 years or whatever it is. And now they're actually getting to take the responsibility for automation and uh, run an automated machine. And so the, the nature of the work becomes more rewarding. And so that's when, we have somebody with 30 years experience that gets a chance to work on this kind of new product. Part of the evolution cycle is you do it in conjunction with them. We don't just kind of develop something and spring on them. It's just conventional knowledge and best practice that you bring the end user into the design process. And say, so here's what we think.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli, and in this episode... I'm chatting with the president of Promation and Trillium Network board member, Daryl Spector. And that day, we also had the privilege of speaking with Barath Nangia, co-founder and CEO of Nuclear Promise X, or NPX. Promation, founded in 1995, is an industrial automation company with a long history of automotive and nuclear work. NPX, founded in 2018, uses advanced software to find efficiencies in nuclear refurbishment activities. How Daryl and Barath came to meet is an interesting story, which is discussed in the episode. That day, we were chatting about industrial automation, a subject we've covered before on this podcast. Now, I'm not going to bore you with a long-winded review of how important the adoption of automation is to the continued productivity of Ontario's advanced manufacturing ecosystem. I won't. I promise. Because if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know that. But what made this discussion different, for me anyway, was the insights I gained after recording the episode and editing it. See, Daryl Barath and other guests have discussed the challenges of adopting automation technology, and the nuclear industry, whether it's from manufacturing of components to repair and refurbishment, is seeing similar challenges. And as the wide-eyed unremarkable that I am, I couldn't really understand why. I mean, this tech is made for you to make your lives, your jobs, your products better. What's the holdup? And then, as I was editing this episode, I answered my own question. See, each guest I have on the show is given their own microphone, usually. Each microphone, or channel, generates one sound file. When laid over top of each other, collectively, these sound files become the audio file that you hear. In an effort to provide a good listening experience, I like to trim the silent parts of the audio files to ensure that the person talking is truly the only thing you're hearing. I trim the silent bits manually even though there's a plug-in I could use to automatically trim them. Why do I still do it manually? Because the software I use can't tell the difference between me interjecting for a second to say, hey, good point, and someone tapping on a microphone or coughing. So I still need to go back and check it again. Also, trimming the silent bits the way I do it is not a simple snip-snip activity. The way I do it involves volume fading, clever panning, and some tricks I use to avoid using compression. All of them, manual. I'd imagine that running a nuclear reactor is a touch more complicated than editing a podcast. And yet, I don't have an automation tool that can trim silence in a way that works for me. And that's when I realized the challenges they're facing in the nuclear sector. The immense institutional knowledge of veteran nuclear professionals cannot be easily automated. And when I realized that, I realized how truly impressive the solutions Promation and NPX have come up with actually are. Have a listen. I actually haven't been here since the spring of 2017, Daryl.
0: Really, I didn't realize it had actually been that long.
1: Yeah, I was here. It was I, this is back when I just started at the APMA, and this hmm. this 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 floor did not look like this. It, it didn't exist like this until December 2022.
0: Oh wow! So yeah, we just did some uh, some pretty big office renovations and meeting spaces and so on. So
1: Very cool. So it's, yeah, today we are at Promation, and I am speaking with, and I kind of jumped the gun there. Would you please introduce yourself, sir?
0: Yeah, my name is Daryl Specter. I'm president of Promation. Uh, I've been here for almost 20 years, so we started off in automotive, and now I'm the president of Promation, so I run both the automotive automation and the nuclear
1: side. And you also have another title, too, with regards to Trillium, don't you? Uh, I do, yes. I also uh, enjoy the privilege of sitting on the board. Yeah. Our board is no shortage of uh, fantastic conversations. So, Daryl, thank you for coming on the show today. And you brought a friend today, didn't you? I did, yes. I'm, I'm uh, pleased and privileged to be joined by Bharath Nanjia from NPX.
2: Hello. I'm uh, Bharath. I'm uh, the co-founder and CEO of NPX, and I'm here to fact-check Daryl today to make sure everything he says is accurate and correct. Awesome. So, Daryl, for the people who
1: didn't who weren't here that day in the spring of 2017, tell us a bit about Promation, what you do, where you started, where you're headed, sure. stuff like that. Yeah, so Promation started off in 1995, actually, in the founder's basement,
0: uh, designing and building automation for automotive uh, assembly and production systems. Uh, since that time, we grew in the automotive space for a broader set of automation machinery, so basically you've ever seen like the how it works type stuff the machines that make stuff. Uh, so that's kind of what we started off doing was the machines that made stuff for automotive. And then from there, we pivoted off into other industries. And then in uh, 2007, we actually got involved in the nuclear industry for, because of our competencies in automation, because they were doing a refurbishment of a reactor at Point La Pro. And the folks at, at, at the time Atomic Energy of Canada Limited, which is now uh, SNC-Lavalin level in nuclear, needed automation competencies to refurbish the reactor. So that's how we got into it. We didn't know anything about nuclear. But we knew a lot about automation and how to build robust systems, and that's how we got into it. And
1: since then, we've grown in the nuclear space as well. Daryl, you said a phrase that I thought was pretty interesting. You said the uh, you had competencies in automation that you developed in automotive. Can you tell us a little bit about what those competencies look like? What are they? What tell us a bit about that?
0: Yeah, I think maybe conventionally the way people would relate to it. The most is you know production machinery, so high volume production machinery, robotics, you know vision systems. So if you've seen Iron Man and you see the robot that kind of puts his armor on, those kind of robots. So we'll integrate those. Essentially, the way I've described it before, it's kind of like Lego for grownups. We just kind of design and build our own Lego sets. So I've been mechanical engineer by training, and you know like to tinker since I was a kid. So you know it's kept me engaged, and and um, so we design and build these machines that do things and make stuff, and it's kind of neat because you know whether the project's you know three months or two years. You kind of see it come to life as an idea, you know, the designers design stuff. We, we buy parts or we machine parts or, or procure things. We kind of build it together and then, you know, you wire it up. So that's kind of like the nervous system, you know, and then you build the control panel, which is kind of like the brains, but the brains actually doesn't have any intelligence Till like programmer goes in and gives it a program. And then like Frankenstein, you kind of give it life and it starts to move and do things, you know, it starts to learn how to walk, you debug it and then it gets shipped out the door and it's kind of a, a tearful moment. Cause you're proud to see what, what we built but it's also kind of sad to see it
1: go. And then we're on to the next one. That's Promation. Barath, tell us a little bit about what, uh, tell us about your company, uh, the genesis of it, the the AIMS. Tell us a
2: bit about, about that. Sure, so we're a little bit younger. We're Nuclear Promise X, or NPX as we're called in the industry. My background is in the nuclear industry. I'm a nuclear engineer, and I've been in the industry for about 15 years. About five years ago, I had the realization that we have a lot of work ahead of us to extend the life of our plants to build new nuclear plants for the nuclear industry to be ready for the challenge that's coming up in front of us. And we wanted to find ways of making the nuclear industry even better, make things faster, cheaper, safer, and we wanted to do that through innovation. That led to the founding of NPX about five years ago. And uh, we started off with four people and over five years, we're now almost 180 people working primarily in Ontario. That's awesome. So... I understand in the broadest sense
1: how nuclear energy works. The common theme with nuclear, at least amongst its detractors, are the complexity, the cost, and the dangers. Can we, can we shed some light into this discussion and how nuclear is, as far as I understand, not really any of those things? Sure.
0: Yeah, I, um, I think we'll probably tag team this question pretty well. But the fact is nuclear as a technology has been around for decades. There's a huge body of knowledge uh, around the science and the physics around it which keeps evolving as well. And it continually, one of the big things around the nuclear industry is around, you know, being a learning organization and learning from high compliance results and so on. So there's a lot of analysis and there's also a very, very, very robust regulator through the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, the CNSC, that acts kind of like as the the overseer to make sure that things are on the sidelines. So the industry is very much about compliance and a very high threshold of standards that are both regulated, but also behavioral and organizational as well. You know one of the I think one of the comments around nuclear if you is you know what about the risk you know and so yeah there's a high severity chance but the likelihood of occurrence is extremely low and if you look at the the stats and the deaths related to the nuclear industry as related to oil and gas or other ones it's a fraction like it, it's a rounding error almost in some cases and then on the on the the full life cycle management including spent fuel and, and waste the fact is nuclear is the only industry that actually has a complete asset management and traceability of the entire life cycle of the nuclear assets and fleets very, very close. So, you know, even with oil and gas or other industries like wind and, you know, geothermal and solar and so on, it doesn't actually take into account the full life cycle side of things. So, from the harvesting of the raw materials that goes into it, the rare earth metals and, and whatnot, and the end of life asset management, that stuff's not done either. So, from a holistic point of view, the industry, from a power generation point of view, is highly compliant, highly regulated. From a societal benefit, you know, just with the low carbon, base load, reliable, low cost, and so on power generation and from the waste side of things it's also very robust and there's also just a very very high social responsibility side of things so now you're seeing a lot more push where the nuclear power generation in canada is starting to lead the growth of the medical isotopes and in radiopharmaceuticals industry and for global supply and so on for you know cancer treatments and diagnostics and therapeutics and so on
2: yeah the well said there daryl the the only things i would add i guess maybe just a, a few facts here in ontario we're about 60% powered by nuclear. Uh, we're also very fortunate that we have hydropower to top that off and uh, our grid is one of the cleanest in the world. So on average, I think the CO2 per kilowatt hours is about 30 to 40 grams. Uh, and that contrasts with jurisdiction like Germany, let's say, that's about 400 grams uh, of CO2. And I love it when I check the app that shows us the CO2 emissions, and on some days where nuclear and hydro are peaking, we'll see it go down to as low as 6 grams of CO2, which is just unbelievable. The other thing which I think Daryl touched on a little bit, but nuclear is baseload power, which means it's there, it's reliable 24-7 and uh, so it's it's not dependent on when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing so co2 free power 24 7 base load uh what could be better than that and i think you know you talk about yes there is that fear or connotation luckily in ontario i think we're a very pro-nuclear province uh but you know globally uh there has been that history of nuclear there's the connotation with Uh, nuclear weapons, uh, and so on. But I think we're moving past that now in in this decade, in the last few years, especially with people relying on the science and the facts uh, to make decisions as opposed to fear and just misinformation, perhaps.
1: So where does automation fit into this discussion? And again, pardon my grotesque ignorance on this. Where does that where does your technology end up in the plants? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll start with this one. I think the first major
0: foray of automation to nuclear was during the Candu re- the reactor refurbishments, which started off at Bruce Power up on the Bruce Peninsula there for units one and two back in the day. And so the analogy that I've used before is essentially if the reactor, the, the entire reactor plant where they do power generation is like a full on car, the reactor cores like the engine. And so if you've got, you know, a Corvette or some kind of vehicle and the engine's getting old, well, you can throw out the whole car and buy a new one, which is very expensive and not very economical, or you can refurbish the engine. And so you take the engine apart, you kind of pull out the worn bits like the seals, you can re, you know, refurbish the, the bores and all that kind of stuff. So refurbishing a reactor is kind of the same thing, is you just want to refurbish the core and leave the good bits there and take the bad ones out and replace it. So when you're when you're looking at a, a candor reactor that has multiple fuel channels or multiple cylinders of the engine, to do it on a one-on, one-off basis is fine, but when you have to do the whole thing, it becomes quite labor and time intensive and cost intensive. So that's where automation has come in before. So where we got involved wasn't at the Bruce one, but over in Point La Pro in New Brunswick was designing and building an automated reactor refurbishment tool set. So leveraging the automation machinery competencies that we've developed for automotive, we applied the same design principles to the automated tooling for refurbishing the reactor. Uh, so that's kind of the one initial play into it there's other kinds of automation being used that you know i'll I'll let barath speak to those ones around kind of process and the soft side of automation taking it a bit maybe a bit further where i see the future of automation in nuclear is on two fronts one is like i mentioned before but the radio pharmaceuticals medical isotopes that it's a growing area and for that industry to scale like any industry is you need to bring automation to those things so that's a highly complex process that's like pharmaceutical, coupled with nuclear considerations, because it's it's a medical isotopes, nuclear isotopes, that have a hazard around it. So again, whenever you've got scale of production, but you need high compliance and high reliability, that's where automation comes into it. And then also on small modular reactors. So we, you know, people keep hearing about SMRs and small modular reactors. One of the big differences beyond just the the scope and size of it is the scale. And so the intent is that there'll be much broader fleets of SMRs. So you're not just building a four unit site or an eight unit site, you literally build dozens of, of SMRs at different sites. And the scale of those things to be commercially effective have to be cost effective. And another way to look at those things is to automate the production of the SMRs almost like a factory. So you actually have a factory producing the components for SMRs, small modular reactors, that typically be done in a very manual way. And so that's, I think, another uh, part of the value chain where automation would come into play.
2: Daryl, you bring up a really good point about the isotopes, which I think to your earlier question is something that is not as widely known and understood that in addition to producing power, the nuclear industry also provides these life-saving medical isotopes that are used to sterilize medical equipment around the world, that are used to treat cancer. It's a huge part of our story that I think is not as widely known either. But uh, going back to your, your question around automation, I think it's also important just to zoom out a little bit to talk about the landscape here, especially in Ontario. So we've had the benefit of nuclear power for the last 30, 40 years, and those plants have run without incident for a really long time. Now as we look ahead at what the power demand is going to be over the next several decades, say till 2050, and later on the need to get to net zero we're not just decarbonizing our current grid, we're creating a new grid that's five times the size that it is today and decarbonizing that grid. So now we're starting to talk about projects like nuclear refurbishment. We're refurbishing these reactors to go out another 60 years. We're talking about new nuclear plants, SMRs, small modular reactors, as Daryl talked about, as well as potentially large new nuclear reactors as well to meet the demand. The independent electricity supply operator, uh, ISO in uh, Ontario, came out with a report recently called the Pathways to Decarbonization. And if I could summarize it in one sentence, there is no net zero without nuclear. So this is the need for us to get better, to get cheaper, faster. We're in these Some somewhat first-of-a-kind projects with refurbishments and now we've shown that we can do that. So we're now getting into what we called nth-of-a-kind refurbishments. Uh, And then now we're getting into first-of-a-kind SMR deployments in Ontario as well. So while Daryl talked a lot about the Physical automation through robotics, uh, heavy machinery. Our company focuses a lot more on, you know, what Daryl called the softer side, which is around digital transformation, automating processes. We, as an industry, create a lot of data through our regulatory compliance processes, through our engineering processes, operations, maintenance. How do we make those processes better so that we can run these plants efficiently and effectively as well, as well as start to Bring in new technologies like artificial intelligence to use those pieces of data so that we can make better decisions going forward.
0: Yeah, and just to pick up on that, when I think you know you hear about the what, like the thousand-dollar hammer kind of thing or the thousand-dollar light bulb, and part of that reason is because historically, because of the high compliance has been a very manual process. You you have to define the requirements for the hammer, or and then get it reviewed by somebody, and then get it submitted. You know, get the requisition submitted, and define the QA level all this kind of stuff. So it does become quite cumbersome. So the automation um, and innovations that Barath is, is referring to can automate a lot of that stuff. So it's still compliant because you know that the backend engine, the backend software already checks all those boxes of compliance, but you'd literally say, I need another hammer and then spits it out and it shows up the next day, almost like a Amazon type thing at a much, much lower cost, but still delivering that, that compliance side of things. The other really, I think important thing around automation is, you know, we talked about, you know, production side of things and processes and so on. But also just, you know, radiological consideration is that when there is a remote radiological hazard, if there is a area that's kind of quote unquote hot, that is not as desirable for a human to go there or sometimes can't, that's where you can bring in automation, custom crawlers and robots and almost like a, like a bomb disposal type robot type thing, you know, where can you just drive it in there with a camera and go and take care of that radiological hazard
1: and then remove it. And then the humans can go in and do their thing as well. So where do these, what's, where are you guys pouring the innovation sauce? In nuclear automation
2: the first big area is refurbishment projects these are two billion dollars per unit create lots of jobs and lots of opportunities in the economy but there is imperative on us to get better with every single unit when we go from one unit being refurbished and so one of the opportunities there was it's a typically a four-year long outage to refurbish a CANDU nuclear unit. How do we get that down to three and a half years and then three years and similarly reduce the costs? And that's where we've worked with companies like Promation to bring in ideas, uh, automate certain activities, because we're not gonna get to a year off of our critical path of the project by just working a little bit faster each time we have to do things quite differently and outside the box so refurbishment projects is one and then ongoing operations and maintenance of a plant so we want to try to get that as lean as efficient as nuclear facilities we try to run as world-class state-of-the-art facilities so there are always ongoing capital projects to upgrade equipment even though The plant is still running. We would do a lot of online work, a lot of outage work. And so how do we streamline these capital projects? How do we streamline ongoing ops and maintenance? And now hot off the press would be the new nuclear projects of, we have a great opportunity to rethink everything from requirements and regulations and compliance to design, to construction, to operations. So how do we build in tools like online monitoring for our equipment so we don't need people and engineers to be wasting time going and collecting data. We can automate a lot of that data from the equipment streaming into a monitoring center and have the engineers and owner operators focus their time on making good decisions using that data as well. So lots of opportunities uh, the way the nuclear industry is set up right now uh, across the board.
0: I think one thing that's changed as well is that there's been two two or three driving factors uh, that have been enabling... Considerations: One is that there's a much higher degree of confidence and maturity around operating nuclear plants and nuclear fleets. Two is that the overall development of peripheral technologies that don't exist as pervasively in nuclear in terms of application are being more mature and established in the other areas of aerospace, medical, automotive, and so on. And so nuclear is saying, well, hey, what about us? Like maybe we should start to make, take advantage of these things. And three is just the commercial consideration of it, is that we just can't afford to keep doing things the same old way. And so now there's more of a chorus of, hey, why are we doing things the way we've always done it? Well, and the answer before was, well, because if we change things, we might compromise the reliability or, or you know, we just want to keep the status quo and have predictability. And now that that is becoming a quieter voice and there's been a lot more appetite to embrace innovation. So now you're getting this common chorus that creates a climate towards allowing for innovation, and that desire for innovation could have cost effectiveness, efficiencies, all that kind of stuff, in addition to a tight labor market. So to Baras' point is that if you have one engineer tied up for six months collecting data, that's one engineer that's actually not, not designing or discovering another innovation thing as well. So it also helps to address just a, a tight labor pool that we all know is an issue right now. So across those fronts, I think, The nuclear industry has been more receptive to it and responding to the evolution of opportunity. So it's almost like a perfect storm in a good way of conditions that allows clearly a company like NPS to succeed if they've had 180 person growth over five years, that it's showing not only are they adept and competent, but also the market demand
1: is like a sponge saying, like, what else do you have? So in my conversations with other industries, specifically aerospace... One of the challenges I've come to understand that the aerospace sector is facing is that because of the nature, the advanced nature of their manufacturing process, they have an issue with paper tracking. They track everything they do. You can trace everything you need to trace, but you got to lick your thumb and go through paper. And that's especially being complicated by the fact of a retiring workforce. So the people who wrote the paper... They're slowly starting to leave the sector. Two part question, I guess. One is nuclear automation kind of facing a similar challenge and two, what are you guys doing about it?
0: Well, I mean, as you asked the question, the first thing that came to mind is the reason that the aerospace sector is still there because they haven't talked to NPX yet. Um, <laughs> but you know, there's an analogy between that. When you're building a reactor, there are a lot of permanent reactor components. So all the bits that go inside the engine. That need complete traceability from the point of the material, the raw material, you know, which lot of forging did this come from? Which mill did this come from? So the material test report, the MTR, or certified material test report. Then there's actually the testing of the material to validate it. It comes along with that. Then all of the validation of the manufacturing process, the operator that worked on that component, the pedigree of that operator you know, the calibration equipment. So there's a lot of paper trail that goes into it, just extremely analogous to that side of things, but I think that's where some of the automation is coming into it, the procedural documentation automation and that track and trace, you know, with evolutions around things like blockchain and that kind of data set that allows you to lock it in. So there's I think there's some commonalities around there because I, I think the aerospace sector, both from the labor, people, process and material side of things, is almost directly comparative to a nuclear component track and trace program.
2: Yeah. To me, as you were describing the uh, situation in the aerospace industry, it felt like you were describing nuclear for sure. Uh, funny story is when I joined the nuclear industry as a intern about 15 years ago, my first mentor taught me and said, as long as you don't change anything for the next 40 years, you're going to have a great career and then you're going to retire. Uh, so that should be your mission for the next 40 years is don't change anything. Now, I get where he was coming from. He was coming from a point of, you know, it's a safe analyzed state and try not to deviate from it. But I think historically that thinking has then extended to don't change anything in the way we work. And so if it was paper before, if it was cumbersome, we're sending shipping binders of documents with parts. uh, Let's continue to do that. But I think now we're seeing a change. Uh, We're seeing the owner operators, not just allow innovation, but, demand innovation from their vendors and suppliers they're looking for ways to get more efficient get faster and there are some massive projects that are ongoing in our industry right now around digital transformation being led by uh, organizations like bruce power and ontario power generation that we work with very closely so these are helping us define data standards for our nuclear industry so that utilities suppliers service providers, parts providers can all work together uh, and have that common data dictionary, data language so that we can automate a lot of this information transfer and it doesn't have to be paper anymore. As a innovation company, we're five years old, but we've tried to avoid buying a printer. And so far for five years, we've been uh, pretty successful at it. Are
1: you serious? Well, have, <laughs> yeah. you have 3D printers, just not We paper. have 3D
2: printers, yes, <laughs> yes, but uh, not the uh, traditional paper printers.
1: Nice, is that,
2: is that true? It's very true. Uh, there have been a couple of occasions where we've needed to go print something, so we walk over to the library, you know, you're shipping something and needs a label or something. So we've done that, but for our work, for documents, reviews, etc., it's all electronic, yes.
1: That's actually pretty cool. Everyone talks about the paperless office and yet you're actually walking across the street to the library to make it a reality.
2: Good for you. Yeah, it's it's one of the reasons why we started. It's part of our culture. We're trying to make things better. So we're, we're trying to be as different from status quo as we can be. Well, then I got some friends in aerospace I'd like to introduce you to then.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think just a, another comment on that one is that I would say like 10 or 15 years ago, a company like NPX probably would have gotten traction that you would have gotten when you did launch. And that also speaks to the nature of the nuclear industry where you know historically it was very insular, very exclusive, maybe a degree of, of arrogance around, I don't even want to bother explaining to you because you probably wouldn't get it. It's, it's over your head kind of thing. And, and it almost enjoyed that kind of persona from the 60s, 70s, 80s kind of thing. And I think what's happened since then is there's been really a genuine desire to be receptive and to embrace the evolutions within other industry sectors and, and so on. So like trying to engage with new companies with, with different perspectives, like from automotive or from tech or from whatever it is, because they know that they just need to, need to do things different to evolve
1: uh, and to be relevant. So. so all of this innovation, where is the battleground between the innovation and the old guard? Like, do the regulators want new innovations or are they are they perfectly happy to stay right where they are?
2: i think that's a question that i've got many times when i've tried to explain to people outside the nuclear industry what we are doing what we're trying to do and we'll get this question we'll say isn't nuclear highly regulated don't you get pushback from your regulator and i'm happy to confirm here today that that is a myth our regulator the canadian nuclear safety commission cnsc has probably one of the highest credibility in the world amongst nuclear regulators all across all countries They enjoy a degree of prestige and very, very credible. And you can see that from our track record as an industry. But at the same time, the CNSC is actively communicating that they're open to innovation. They don't want to be a bottleneck. They don't want to hold back anybody from innovating. And every time, and this is firsthand experience, every time I've reached out to the CNSC to talk about tools like artificial intelligence, to talk about tools like digital transformation, I've got an amazing reception. They'll invite us to talk to several experts. They'll give us some of their thoughts and feedback. And interestingly, next week I'm heading to Vienna where the International Atomic Energy Agency is headquartered. That's the the global IAEA, and one of the members there going to talk about artificial intelligence is our regulator. So, I think this is a myth that the regulator doesn't want innovation. I think our regulator all they ask for is a heads up to say, you know, let us know what you're thinking. Let us know what you where you want to go so that we can staff up so that we can skill up to be able to regulate in an effective manner where the industry is headed as well.
1: That is not, I don't think, what the lay person would imagine. I think they imagine most nuclear regulators as I guess the word I would use would be humorless. Things don't go wrong often, but I mean, the cost of getting things wrong in nuclear is obviously very high. So your margin of error is basically zero. So I would imagine the regulators would be humorless, but you're saying that's not the case. Well, I'd say maybe that's a general comment to
0: regulators, like overall, is that my experience with healthy regulatory bodies and agencies, not just in nuclear, but in industry in general, are ones that openly work with in, in conjunction with the market in which they, they handshake with while maintaining an unwavering focus on their need to enforce compliance. And and the thinking behind that is that, you know, if we're not collaborating with our subject matter and there's just a firewall, almost like a, you know, not to be punitive, but like a CRA auditor on your files, they'd rather say, like, what are the issues you're struggling with? Okay, well, here's what we need you to do. How would you go about implementing that? We, like, this has to be a requirement that you need to comply with, but we're willing to adapt it so it works for you and you can work with us to make sure that you're not falling offside or being able to navigate within that. I think one of the criticisms, again, from the anti-nuke type folks, is that the the regulator and the industry are too close together, and the fear is that they'll have influence over you know dispositioning things or not, which is completely false, as, as you know Barath pointed out before. But it really, what it does give is a very healthy relationship between the two that makes the industry and the regulator more effective for each other. So as we're engaging the evolution of innovation and automation in this space, it means the regulatory framework can be ahead of it. You you know, we're seeing a big push towards advanced manufacturing, additive manufacturing 3D printing, and so on. And increasingly, industries are looking at how those can be applied in the building industry, in the aerospace industry, and so on. But if the regulator is out of sync with it, you can have all this great innovation that you can't actually develop an employee and so westinghouse is one of the first companies in the world to actually 3d print a component that went into a fueling machine in the us which is probably one of the most regulated highly reliable complex components that you need to to do it is because of obsolescence because back in the day we'd cast you know we'd cast these metal shapes but casting either there's obsolescence or, or you can't find the components you can't make it anymore because the methodology's you know gone obsolete so 3d printing's ideal for it And now those regulators are saying, okay, we want to embrace the innovation. We want to embrace the industries, move into that area. How can we work with you and in conjunction with you to evolve that landscape and be ahead of it? And so like the Technical Standards and Safety Association, the TSSA, that regulates within Ontario, pressure boundary stuff. We've been in discussions with them around how can we evolve the regulatory framework as we evolve the technology. And that kind of conversation is what's going to make the change happen.
2: I think one place where I feel like there is still room to improve is new projects. So we have the Impact Assessment Act uh, and we have the Impact Assessment uh, Agency of Canada. And currently, as we look at new nuclear projects or any large infrastructure projects, there is a huge amount of time that is added into your process by default so the default is it's going to take as long as it takes so we do need to find ways to work better on the regulations as it pertains to the impact assessment very important to understand uh, environmental impacts but i think we can speed up the process by using effective tools of communication data-centric approaches uh, and so on as well so uh, there was some funding allocated in the federal budget this year towards modernizing how the impact assessment process is going to work. So we're hopeful that there will be some effective changes there.
1: Can either of you give me some concrete examples of some of the specific innovations you're working on right now? Like what is, you know, proposal, this is the problem it'll address, and here's what we're looking to improve. Is there anything specific you can share with us?
2: Uh, I'll go first. Uh, I think the one example that comes to mind is digital engineering. Like I said, we try to maintain our facilities as state of the art. So there's a lot of capital projects and traditionally the engineering changes, the making sure there is no adverse impacts of changing out a valve with a different valve or a pump with a new pump. We call that the engineering change process. And it has traditionally been a lot of paper forms. We go through checklists, uh, uh, update drawings and markup drawings, etc. We're transforming all of that into a digital engineering process uh, with our partners at Bruce Power, and this will help reduce the cost of that engineering process by about 50%. And so if we think about hundreds of millions of dollars worth of capital projects being run on a operating facility every year, this is a huge gain and ultimately makes its way back to the, the ratepayers of Ontario. You said 50%? That's right. Yeah. So one of the other uh, benefits at Bruce Power is it's a multi unit site. So it's one of the, actually, I think it is the largest operating facility, nuclear facility in the world. So they have eight units. And if we make a upgrade or a change on one unit, and we have all of that information digitally as, part of a database, now we can replicate that across the other seven units a lot more effectively. So the business case for a multi-unit site to go digital is is uh, even stronger.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, going back to kind of the, the hard automation side of things, something that we just recently did, um, we developed a product for the nuclear industry called the, the feeder coupling gap gauge. And, and you know, it's, it's a neat name, but effectively what it is, is that when you're putting together a reactor, you know, you can reconnecting the the pipes that transmit the heated steam to the turbine called feeder pipes uh and you are it to the fuel channel which is kind of that that to that engine that that has the fuel bundle in it and has the heat and and so on so you know if it's just one channel there's four bolts that kind of bolt this flange onto it conventionally it was done with a you know a guy and a, a wrench and some feeler gauges just to get the gap right so as you're putting this clamp plate you know back onto the other one you know, they'd have this, you know, feeler gauge set in there, kind of feeling, okay, is it almost there? Tighten one bolt, go to the other one, tighten the other bolt, go to the other one, tighten the other bolt, you know, write some numbers down, all that kind of stuff on a piece of paper over the comms and the communication headset and whatnot. It could take like an hour to an hour and a half per channel. So if it's only one, so be it. But when you're refurbishing a reactor and there's 480 channels, so there's, you know, 960 per side, that's a lot of evolutions. So we developed this device that you just kind of clamp in there and it has a cable that goes to a visual, a visual digital readout that, you know, has a graphic image of what the fuel channel looks like. And as you tighten the bolts, you actually get dynamic readout with like a color coded red, yellow, green. And so as you tighten the bolts, it'll say, okay, well now you're in position, you're down. So that process speeds it up by an order of magnitude. So it used to take almost an hour to an hour and a half per channel. They can now do it in like 15 minutes. And you've got like a a, a digital record of that readout that shows what the measurements were, which has to be part of, you know, part of that recording process when you're, you know, build it for documentation purposes, um, as opposed to a guy, again, just on a headset saying, okay, I've got down to like, you know, 180 thou, you know, somebody records it manually and then you you file those in a binder somewhere. So that's just one example of, you know, how we're trying to practical example right now that we've developed. And there's, I would say dozens or even hundreds of more of those kinds of opportunities in the industry.
2: I think the Gap Gauge tool, you won a recent uh, innovation yes, award. Yes, correct. Yes, yeah. You came. won an
0: award and you didn't we, tell us? We did win an award. We tried Congrats. to be modest. Tell but, us about uh, the award. was the award for? So the uh, the supply chain organization that represents almost like the APMA for nuclear, the OCNI. So the Organization of Canadian Nuclear Industries every year at, at their AGM has different awards for different things. And one of them is the Innovation Award. So we applied for that one. And the, the we formation was fortunate to win the award this past year. For that product, because of the impact it had on the on the uh, evolution of that
1: that iteration within refurbishing the reactors. Congratulations. Thank you. So, in the story you, that you two just told me about screwing the flange on, and you have a feeler gauge. This is a little bit philosophical, but I think for me, this this was my aha moment from the podcast, where it's like if you if you think about it, I'd be willing to bet that the person doing the attachment of the flange that person probably knows how to do it blind. Mm-hmm. And if that person does it, it'll take what the time that it takes, but it's done, right? How do you get technology to be as reliably good as that person who's been doing it for decades? I mean, I think
0: the simple answer is that technology is consistently reliable. One of the big factors in nuclear, like it is in medical and so on, is human performance. Right? so the repeatability and try to remove the human error outside of things and there's different techniques and tools to do that but when you're using automation or automated processes or automated procedures and, and technology and devices it starts to remove the opportunities for human performance that's one side of it because it gets tiresome and then also don't forget too that when you're inside a reactor they're not ideal conditions it's not like you've got your, your it's not like you're in your garage on a sunny afternoon with the the door up and it's breezy and nice you can take breaks and the music's playing like you're in sometimes hot environments, human environments in a plastic suit or plastics on to, to limit contamination exposure to you as the operator inside the reactor with these like triple layer gloves on trying to use a wrench and so on. So trying to do that evolution for an hour is even though if you can do it in your sleep, it's not necessarily pleasant. So the feedback from the folks in the fields is that they love this thing because it makes the work more enjoyable and more valuable. And that's what we find in general, it, it, like both in nuclear, but also non-nuclear where we design and build an automated system to automate the production of these, um, these valves, these, that you, like the same kind of valve you put under your kitchen sink to shut off the water. D- done in a, a semi-automated uh, manual process done by, you know, middle-aged women pre- predominantly doing manual labor day in, day out. And so, the company contracted us to build this automated system that fully automated the process and the fear was that are the workers and operators going to feel upset that you're displacing their work? And the feedback was they actually love it because it actually makes their job more rewarding. Like they get to, you know, here's a, you know a, a middle-aged production worker that's been doing production environment for almost 10 20 15 you know, 15 20 years or whatever it is and now they're actually getting to take the responsibility for automation and uh, run an automated machine and so the, the nature of the work becomes more rewarding and so that's when we have somebody with 30 years experience that gets a chance to work on this kind of new product part of the evolution cycle is you do it in conjunction with them we don't just kind of develop something in the spring on, on them it's just conventional knowledge and best practice that you bring the end user into the design process and say, here's what we think, what would work for you? And, and so one of the terms in in uh, nuclear when doing a design evolution is comms reviews or constructability, operability, maintenance, and safety. And so you bring these stakeholders in to kind of do a 360 tire kicking of the process saying, well, listen, if I need to maintain this thing, I need X. Well, if I'm going to operate it, I need Y. If I'm going to construct it, I need Z. You know, from a safety point of view, I need to have this kind of robustness. And so you get this kind of stakeholder input early on. And because they get to have that proactive input into the design, when it gets to deployed, they actually get excited and keen to see how their inputs got translated into outputs. And
1: so they want to make it it succeed as a product. Daryl, tell me a little bit about the relationship between some of the players within this, uh, within your sector. Is it collaborative? Is it combative? Is it, what's it like? I think one of the other things that's evolved a lot
0: as well in the industry, especially probably in the f- past five or 10 years, is the culture of collaboration. Like any highly competitive industry, everyone wants to keep everything to their chest and there's a lot of proprietary knowledge and competitiveness and so on. But one of the, uh, one of the you know concepts is, is this concept of, of competimates. So you can still be competitors, but you can collaborate as well for the greater good of the industry and so on. In fact, even when NPX first came on the scene, the evolution for us was that Bruce Power rightfully acknowledged that, you know, our job is to run an operating plants, but there's all these honey-do list things we'd like to do. We just never get to them. And so, okay, we'll get to that on Saturday. And then Saturday something comes up and you know what, I need to go to the grocery store. And then another week goes by and that honey-do list gets longer and longer. So like in many ways, like the industry was said, you know, we'll, all these great things you want to do. And then NPX saw the need and then how we got involved with them is that Bruce Power started to innovation program and said we're so busy we've got all these great intentions we just can't make it happen so we want you guys to engage with npx and everyone's like who is npx and so they came in and it's kind of one of these weird things and actually i remember when we first met was in one of these in this room before we renovated and the guy sat around the table i think you were just a team of like three or four at the time and as the and steve and, and greg and and uh, the folks were talking about what their role and mandate was you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, these guys could really be partners, like not just these people that get in the way of us engaging with Roos Power, but actually broader partners and helping to catalyze our engagement to the industry. Because our focus is on product development, product design, you know, solution, engineering, and so on. But we're not experts at engaging the process of innovation at the utility level, which is what they did. So they kind of became quickly a, a strong ally and we supported each other in the mutual evolution of, of that pursuit.
2: I think in our industry, we use the term competitive, which has worked out really, really well. We have lots of uh, unique opportunities, big problems to solve. And I think no one organization has all the skills and capabilities to uh, solve those. So the more we collaborate, the more we work together, I think it's in the best interest of our industry and then ultimately the people of Ontario.
1: I want to thank you both for taking the time today to chat with me. You've uh, You've educated me a lot, I think. There were some great insights, and I and you gave me my aha moment. So Daryl Rath, thank you so much for joining me today. and um, yeah, this was great. Thank you, Nick.
2: Yeah, this was fun. Thank you.